Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. This is our eighth sermon in our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, and we're in the midst of Christ's exaltation, which began with his bodily resurrection. His next work in exaltation follows. He ascended bodily into heaven, our Lord's ascension. Now, theologically, it's usually gathered together with his session, that is, his coronation enthronement at the Father's right hand. But I thought it best to consider his session next Sunday and his ascension today. Now Luke records Jesus' ascent at the end of his gospel in chapter 24. This is what he writes. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And next we have the disciples' reaction as Luke closes his gospel with these words. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now this response, this reaction is quite a contrast to the one we saw in the resurrection of our Savior, isn't it? The disciples now are able to understand the ascension as it happened. They were convinced now that Jesus had indeed finally returned to a glorious, renewed resurrection life. They hear with their ears his final earthly blessing from his lips. And they see him visibly ascend from the earth in an unusual way. And there's more information as Luke takes up again the ascension in his prologue to the Acts of the Apostles. Here, he writes again to his patron, Theophilus. In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke then goes on to explain what happened in those 40 days between our Savior's resurrection and his ascension. And then he says this, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. He then goes on to explain the appearance of two messengers, two angels, in the verses that follow. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now notice how Luke continues to write with his patron in view. 
We learned in our Luke Gospel series how Theophilus has a knowledge of the Lord Jesus, but lacks a certainty of the Lord Jesus, namely a a saving faith, a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice here how Luke emphasizes the ascension as an historic event very clearly. This is not an illusion of the mind. It's as if he's saying, now Theophilus, notice the Lord Jesus' ascension is as real as his birth, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. So let's ask a simple question following from Luke's point to his patron. He obviously has this evangelistic purpose in mind, that Theophilus will come to a trusting certainty of the Lord Jesus, and that in the ascension there is some stabilizing truth that anchors Theophilus in this newfound faith. And the scriptures point us in this direction, doesn't it? When our Savior told his disciples in John 16 that he was leaving them and returning to the Father, John records that they were filled with grief. But notice what our Savior responds to this bereavement. Perhaps they were actually weeping openly. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Now, how in the world would this be possible? Why would leaving them be for their good? He explains in what follows. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And then in response to Thomas's questions, Jesus explains that it is in his ascension and his session at God's right hand that will guarantee not only our salvation, but also the fact that his intercession on our behalf, hearing our prayers, will be certain. Also, guaranteeing our own ascension into the Father's presence, hence his comfort to the disciples. I will go, and I will prepare a place and return to bring you with me to the place where I am going. So not only has our Savior had his own bodily ascension, but in the same way will the believer. And lastly, we also know from a larger uh, rendering of this discourse at his farewell that the Holy Spirit becomes the guarantee of our ascension. In other places in the New Testament, we learn all three of these truths. This idea that the Savior takes the initiative to hear our prayers, to gather us on the great last day, and to send us the gift of the Holy Spirit as guaranteed. 
Obviously, the disciples remembered Jesus' words when they joined him on the Mount of Olives. Their gloom and despair are gone, and they remember his teaching in those final hours before his arrest, his promise to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and his command to wait in Jerusalem for his sending. Apparently, they did understand Christ's ascension into heaven is for their good. And so in the same way this evening, let us look at those three things, how Christ pleads our cause in heaven, in the presence of the Father. He is our advocate and intercessor. Second, his ascension is a guarantee that he will take us, his brothers and sisters, to himself in heaven. And the third is a further guarantee. Christ sends his spirit to us on earth to draw us to the place where he has gone before at the right hand of God. That we lift our hearts, as we say in the beginning of the prayer in communion, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. This is possible only because of his ascension, that where he is, we will be also. So we begin first with his intercession. For his intercession, we find this underlined in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. It is there in the eighth chapter that he asks this question, who is to condemn? Notice it's not what or ourselves, but who is it? Well, he has in mind very specifically the accuser, Satan as one finds in Job chapter 1. But notice what he says, that his accusations fail. Why? Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And this work of Christ's intercession After his ascension, we find again in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. And here it is. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And here's a verse that you will be familiar because it's part of the comfortable words again in the Lord's Supper. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice Cranmer's genius in taking this verse as a comfort, giving us confidence to approach the heavenly throne, as we are not worthy to pick up the crumbs under the table, but because of Christ's merit and work and going on before us, we can come with confidence to receive the supper of the Lamb. Jesus Christ stood in your place to die your death, and having paid that enormous price, he now stands in your place as your representative as your advocate to defend your cause and guarantee your acquittal. Christ the advocate represents all believers before the Father's just throne. And with your mediator, 
pleading your cause that all of God's just claims are met and so all of Satan's unjust accusations are refuted. How can we not then stand confidently in our life of prayer or in our witness to others knowing that whatever accusation is thrown against us, it is overturned by the ready intercession of our mediator. There is more scriptural evidence of this fact where Hebrews tells us in chapter 7, verses 24 to 25, that Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And here's his point. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now notice the argument. It's that this high priest, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, the eternal son, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, this one, what he has done as our mediator makes a certainty inevitable because he cannot negate or cease to be who he is, gives us the guarantee that his intercession will be effective and successful for us. Our reconciliation to our Heavenly Father is so complete because he prepared the way into his presence on our behalf. What would have filled us with dread, and indeed fills all those who have denied Christ with dread, that they cry out that the rocks themselves should fall upon them to cover them, is now replete with love and grace, mercy and kindness. We are in his presence as he truly is. So our first comfort is the intercession of Christ. The second is his guarantee of our own ascension. Now, what scriptural evidence would we have for our Savior's guarantee of our own ascension? Well, last Lord's Day, we examined how his resurrection is a guarantee of our bodily resurrection. When your flesh raised by the power of Christ's spirit, will be reunited with your soul and made like Christ's glorious body. In the same way, Christ's bodily ascension has the same consequence for the believer. Because you are in union with Christ, whose body is now at God's right hand, the love of God compels him to lead us into his presence. We've already recalled in John 14, when his farewell, the Lord Jesus comforts his disciples that in his father's house there are many rooms and he is going to prepare a place for us and so prepared, I will come back to take you with me that you may be where I am. This is Christ's sure and certain promise. It's what is the foundation stone of what is called his high priestly prayer in John 17, where in verse 24, 
he prays to his father like this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. And later, after his resurrection and before his ascension, he tells Mary Magdalene to go to the disciples with this message from their master, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. You see, that statement to Mary would not have been possible if his atonement hadn't perfected the way for us into our Heavenly Father's presence. And we saw in our study of the Ephesians letter, written some years after Christ's ascension, how the Apostle Paul still writes of this unique event, affecting you and me as believers. He writes this, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Consider what this means. Do you remember what he said in his high priestly prayer just a moment ago? That they may be where I am to see my glory. And now here, Paul comforts the Ephesians in pointing out that the glory of Christ are those who believe and trust in Christ. The manifold witness of the saints in glory ascended bodily before the throne, myriads and myriads, as John's heavenly vision portrays for us, are the saints of God, so that Christ's glory is not only unique in him, but in union with his body, the saints, you and me. What a great comfort this is in the days when our life on earth comes to an end, to know with certainty the guarantee of our ascension and its purpose in bringing Christ glory. Consider also the way to the presence of God, closed to us by the seraphim with flaming sore at the edge of Eden and our first parents' disobedience, is now open forever. How John describes, after hearing Christ's loud voice like a trumpet, he turns to see him in dazzling white at the beginning of Revelation, the priestly sash upon our Savior's shoulder. And then when the word to the seven churches is ended, he sees not a closed door with fiery swords of angels, but rather he sees the door open to heaven. And Christ's same voice, like a trumpet, say, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so John sees the reign of Christ established, his enemies made a footstool under his feet. And we see described the new Jerusalem, its gates, their breathtaking beauty and awe, always remain open. Consider what that means. 
Isaiah foresaw this and described it in chapter 60, verse 11. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. The saved remnant of the nations pour in to the glory of God as its center. I'm reminded also of how it inspired the writer C.S. Lewis in his last book of the Chronicles of Narnia at the last battle when the call goes out further up and further in, further up and further in as all those gather before the heavenly throne of the lion Christ Aslan. The Lord Jesus Christ has left heaven, left the presence of God for your sake. Is it not obvious then that he re-enters heaven for our sake? He assures us that the gates shut because of sin are now open for us forever. Open for all who believe and trust in him. But then there is the further guarantee the present work and reality of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that if our Savior is to continue as our perfect substitute, he must remain truly human. In other words, he is no longer on earth now that he is ascended. The Apostle Peter explains in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, how Christ must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. And we heard how the angels on Ascension Day said how Jesus will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The message is clear. Christ's ascension changes how we encounter him, but it does not change the essential nature of who Christ is as both divine and human. Therefore, he's no longer with the disciples as a bodily presence, according to his human nature. Therefore, one may want to see him and travel the world to seek him, but you will not find him. You cannot see or touch him at this time, except in that period in the 40 days after his resurrection. Instead, we must wait for his second coming. But before that time, when no one will come to face to face with the Jesus in a physical sense, as his people of Judea did in the years between his birth and his ascension on the Mount of Olives, we are now to understand the promise of our Savior in Matthew 28 in different terms. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, how is it possible, on the one hand, for the angels to say, you will not see him until that day he returns, and he can also, our Savior, say, I am with you always to the very end of the age? The answer is God, the Holy Spirit. Christ's Spirit comes and dwells in us richly. Now we've seen how in faith, the Old Testament saint accepts God's promise that the lamb without spot or blemish 
brought to sacrifice, brings the forgiveness of sins. They place their hand on the animal, and the the offering of the animal is for them on their behalf, their substitute. But they also knew that the blood of lambs and goats would not cover their sins. So they looked forward in faith to that future time when God's promise would be fulfilled in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist proclaims of the Lord Jesus. That gift of faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not done through some effort or activity of the Old Testament saint, as if they were somehow more knowledgeable or more holy of their own effort than you or I. Rather, for them to have faith, we know the Spirit is working. Why? Because the Spirit's fundamental work is not in extraordinary gifts, but rather in the basic work of regeneration, new birth, that makes the Old Testament saint faith possible. This is why our Savior chides Nicodemus so, when he says this obvious fact, unless one is born again, born by the Spirit, born anew, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And what is Nicodemus' answer? He just sees it merely in terms of a physical birth. And Jesus chides him, but you are a teacher of Israel and do not know these things because it is plain within the witness of the Old Testament scriptures and in the reality of the sacrificial system that this truth in terms of the Spirit's work of regeneration was already underway. But it is at Pentecost that there is a change. The Lord Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to complete God's promise of salvation, not just to the children of Abraham according to the flesh, but the children of Abraham by faith, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 4. This is the spiritual children of Abraham, brought by the Spirit of Christ from many tongues, tribes, and nations. He is Christ's Spirit, his representative, his voice, his administrator, his vehicle of his grace, the revealer of his majesty. He works for your good and mine until the very end of the age. That's why Paul writes this to the Ephesians in chapter 1. In him You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And later in Ephesians 2, he says these strange words. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off. Now, how in the world could he say this? Well, as we saw when we examined that passage in Ephesians, the Lord Jesus never set foot in Asia Minor or walked the streets of Ephesus. So how is it possible that Christ came and preached peace to them? It is the work of the Holy Spirit 
as the word of the gospel is brought to the nations. And because the Spirit is working, it is as if Christ himself is working, pouring out his gifts from heaven through the Spirit upon his fellow heirs. It is the inheritance of new birth and eternal life that the Spirit guarantees in your regeneration and in mine. So you who trust in the Lord Jesus, ground your trust both in his completed work of atonement and his continuing work in advocacy, prayer, and the real presence by the Spirit. So that you know, no matter how poorly you stumble through the good news of the gospel, or no matter how resistant those who hear it may be that you speak, you can guarantee the work of the Spirit is ongoing and continuing and be comforted by your union with him that what goes out will bring effect in all who hear the gospel. All these things are completed in our Savior's glorious ascension. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.